Agent Power Huddle is a daily jumpstart, giving you all the tools you need to create an amazing real estate career. Led by top experts in the field, you'll learn how to sell more houses in less time while creating the life you want. Welcome to the Agent Power Huddle. How the heck do you talk to clients in a changing market? Like when the market just like absolutely starts shifting. So I brought in someone who, he was on a mastermind with me the other day and he's become one of my, uh, one of my good friends in the world of real estate. I brought in Hunter McKay. I was like, dude, you, I like the way, you're, the way you're explaining these things to clients. So Hunter, before we dive in, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Jesse. You know, I actually love changing markets because one, I just love chaos. I do better at it. And so when everyone else is crying, I'm usually feeling pretty good. Um, but then I also don't mind hard conversations. You know, I think a lot of agents, especially new ones, they get distracted and caught up in, oh no, I'm delivering bad news to my client. They're going to hate me. No, they're going to be temporarily pissed off at you because you are the deliverer of bad news. However, that anger, that upset, that sadness that they throw at you, extremely temporary unless you take it and run with it. If you can receive their anger, their upset, their whatever, because their listing isn't selling at $100,000 over, or now all of a sudden the price that they thought they were going to get isn't coming, or they're not getting 12 offers or whatever isn't working. It's your job to just know that information, know that it happens a few seconds ahead of your buyer or seller, and then deliver that information as flatly as possible. If you add emotion, your buyer or seller is going to run with it. If you add I'm cool. I'm collected. I know what's going on and I know how we're going to adjust and fix this. If you set the expectations right, the hard conversations aren't hard. They take about 30 minutes, maybe an hour. You give, you know, Xanax and Tylenol some time to work on your client. And then you move on with the next part of the deal, which is on to whatever is the right next action. Where you lose clients is if you don't know what the right next action is to take. The market is going to do whatever the market is going to do. Your job is to guide your client through the market, kind of like a video game. <laughs> I, I, I love it, Hunter. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, including the Tylenol Xanax. All right, so let, let's give everyone a little framework. Vodka should always be on hand. You, a little background on, on, on who you are, how, what your background is. So you, you run a, um, a, a large team in multiple markets at this point. So how do you describe the market areas that your team covers? And then we'll give people kind of a framework of some context as to, you know, how did you get so good at having these hard conversations? So where, how do you describe the markets you guys cover at this point? Uh, so we have Sacramento, Seattle, and California. I'm sorry, and, and uh, Spokane, Washington. And uh, Spokane and Sacramento are basically like carbon copies of each other, just slightly larger. Um, I joke that Sacramento is the Spokane of California. And uh, it's just very like, it's it's rural, it's more Republican, but it's in a blue state. And so it creates this really nice, healthy balance of people that just want to be left the fuck alone and would prefer if people stopped moving from somewhere else to their area. Um, and so, and, and they're, they're not really fussed about where you're coming from. You know, it's like they, they particularly don't like you if you're from California, even Sacramento feels that way. They're like, oh, you're not from Sacramento. You're from the Bay. Mm, we don't like you either. And so it's very much like stay out of here. Um, so if you get the right seller, you can still like pull at their heartstrings and a good love letter that says, you know, I'm local three generations been kicked in the teeth on 14 different offers. Will you please sell your home to me for 10% less than the competing offer? Then the seller might say yes. Um, 
but the rest of the time over the last three to six months, we've been seeing, you know, the same crazy trajectory and in, in up that everyone else has to the moon. And then probably about 45 days ago, everything just stopped. You know, it came to a screeching halt. And we've seen that those areas in particular, we've gone from less than 10 days of holding inventory to we just measured we're at 46 days of holding inventory in Spokane and Sacramento. Um, and we're seeing price reductions on about 50% of properties as they roll through their second weekend. Um, I'm no longer writing full price offers on anything. Um, I'm recommending that my clients just look for 14 day plus on market properties and then offer them 25% less. Um, and we've gotten some amazing things under contract, which is really compensated for the fact that the interest rates are like on planet Neptune. Um, and then we also cover Seattle and Seattle has seen probably the most striking difference because Spokane and Sacramento are still seeing population growth. And so we do still have an inventory problem. Anything in those cities that isn't directly up with $100,000 over list price is going to feel like a crash. And so that's what we're experiencing. It feels really scary because all of a sudden we're not just getting to price a home wherever we feel like and trust that the market will take it to the top of value. Now, all of a sudden, I have to do my market value assessment much closer to where I think true value is. You know, great example. We took a listing in Spokane. I comped it out eight months ago when the market was hot. And I told them, list at $399, it might sell at five and a quarter. We really don't know. It could be a multifamily. And so if someone feels like going you know, full ham on it, it's an Airbnb that could bring in 15K a month. And so what someone will pay for it could be pretty incredible. They decided to wait and put it on the market last month. So instead, we listed it at $399, and I have sold it three times now at $410, and it keeps falling out. I have now written them an offer personally at $375, because I think it can be that ham Airbnb that makes $15K a month month. And if I can pick it up at 375, that would be great. They're deeply offended that they can't get it at 525. And I said, guys, no one gives a shit anymore. You know, I, I told you when to sell it eight months ago, and I'm sorry that you feel that the market has done something to you, but it, it really has. It, the market has done a full tilt to whirl and no one is super excited about an oversized ADU unpermitted from the seventies. Even if the city is acknowledging it, it still looks like it's connected to your neighbor. And all of these things were totally okay when interest rates were at two and a half percent, but when interest rates are approaching six and my hard money is at 11% and I have 6% in cost, the answer is no. <laughs> All right, so let's let's use that as a case study. When it keeps falling out and four months oh, because and here we go. Ryan just handed me the Seattle on market. So as of today, seven days, we're at new listings, 3,000, back on market, 317, list price reductions on 1,698, list price increased on 103 of them. And so those are the ones that, you know, for whatever reason, fell out, but had an, an overhyped offer. And so they went up. And then we're at uh, 2,900 pending, 2,100 sold. And so that holding inventory is up to almost three months at this point. And so that's just huge increases for our, our different areas. And Seattle is actually reducing in overall um, population growth. They're negative 23K a month. Okay. So, so you have the way you're delivering it, which is obviously you have a very confident style to you, but you also just, uh, you had someone drop statistics on your lap. Are you using these statistics when you're talking to clients? Does this help? How, how are you, I mean, other than just kind of ripping the bandaid off and talking to your clients, how, what else are you finding strategically when you talk to your clients about these conversations in these conversations? 
you have to know why the things are happening. You can't just say the market is fucked up, so you have to take a lower price. You know, Then they just think that you're trying to beat them up and, and you still have to defend your client. The point here is that in a decelerating, descending market, everyone is playing race to the bottom and catch falling knives. And what that means is that you don't want to look up and try to reach for something above you because you're likely to grab a blade and get cut. So the only thing that you can do is duck, dodge, and weave and get to ground as fast as possible. You make commitments for five years. You make choices that are commensurate with whatever happens. I can do this for five years, barring the end of the world happening. This is going to hold on for me. And you have to make really tough calls really quickly. And you have to get your clients to understand that you are actually acting in their best interest. The market will recover. Things will go back to normal. Gas prices will reduce from $10 a gallon. But what we can't handle is having our clients deplete their cash reserves or get into a position that they can't sustain for two to five years because that will kick the shit out of them. And you have to make them understand that. And then you have to help them understand what are the available options. And I have always been told that I'm really good at giving people three options, good, bad, and the one that I want them to choose. And it's really obvious that good is terribly expensive. The bad option will kick the shit out of them. And so they walk themselves toward my option. And then they look at me and they go, can I choose the other option? And I go, absolutely. And they go, we wouldn't be mad. And I go, no, I won't be mad. And they go, but it would be really bad for my life. Oh yeah, almost certainly. And if you deliver it just like that, then they go, so why aren't you telling me not to do that? And I go, well, because it is your life. I don't have to live with the consequences. I just won't get paid. And, and that's unfortunate for you because then you won't come back to me and then we won't get to keep working together. So I really hope that you choose the one that gets me paid and gets you the house that you want. Uh, otherwise, you know, we're both just have wasted a ton of our time, but it's really your call. And you have to be able to deliver it with just an, I care about you, but I'm, I'm not going to care to the end of that result. Because if you deliver all of your emotion, then you're going to get stuck on it. And then you're managing not only their emotions, but your own emotions. And I promise you that you're going to fuck something. Up. I love it. Uh, let's see. Fran is asking in the chat box, Spencer, where are you from originally, by the way? You're, you're, are you a New Yorker? No, that's a really, I love that. I went to school in Massachusetts and people always thought that I was the most East Coast Westerner ever. Um, I am from, uh, I was born in Las Vegas, uh, grew up in Spokane and currently live in my suitcase between Seattle, Spokane and Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. So, so understanding why things are happening when you deliver it is absolutely important, but, um, the part you just put the last part, I, I always call this inception. If you guys remember that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, where you put a dream inside someone else's head, right? You create inception. You're giving your clients the, I won't call it the illusion of choice because they really are making the choice, but you are guiding them there to a choice that you believe really is. I mean, your interests align with theirs. How did you develop that skill set? Did someone teach you give three options and guide them towards the, you know, or did just something you developed over time? I think it's probably something I developed over time. You know, I've always been really good at dealing with a lot of um, highly emotional people. Um, I have a very large family and they were all in a real estate brokerage together. And they were all that like, old style, like when things go wrong, get pissed off and throw a computer through the window kind of broker, um, throw the phone against the wall, you know, and have it break into a million pieces when it was a flip phone, you know, have six of those in the office to replace when my father would throw one out the window, moving on the freeway, just, you know, call from the second phone and then hand it over to him. And so I think that when you grow up in that kind of environment, you learn 
uh, how to, how to notice the quickening of someone's breath or the flare of their nostrils. And you're like, Oh, we got to abort. Something's about to happen right now. And when you can get really tuned into the way your clients are feeling, when you pay attention to what it is they care about and you get off of whatever you care about, you will begin to notice the things that are truly important. And when you have to kind of pull back on what you're talking about. Um, one of my favorite examples is my real estate broker in California did not understand that as far as I'm concerned, the only thing I gave a shit about was buying a hot tub. I wanted a hot tub and a pool in my backyard so badly I could not breathe because I have lived in the cold, dank part of the Pacific Northwest without a hot tub for too long. And so I said to her, whatever the house is, my partner needs to like it, but I need a hot, hot tub on closing day. And so the day after closing, when I arrived at my cold ass hot tub, I lost my damn mind. And it was so hard to explain to her how I had bought a $500,000 hot tub that was now cold and I wanted to kill her. And it seemed outrageous. It seemed extreme. It seemed insane. And in that moment, I had the best training exercise for every single one of my clients. I said, please understand that you have a thing that seems unreasonable to you. My job is to locate that thing and then make sure that it happens because then you will give me carte blanche authority to move almost any other piece around and you will be okay with it because I gave you your thing. And sometimes they have three of them, but your job is to ascertain what that is as quickly as possible because then your client will give you the authority to move the other pieces around. And let's be honest, that's really what we all want. We want ultimate flexibility inside a deal because we know that shit goes wrong inside real estate transactions. And if our party remains cool and collected and we remain chilled out, then we can probably get things fixed. It's when agents get freaked out and start yelling at each other and start yelling at their clients or their clients yell at them and then they get dejected and sad and hide for three days that transactions go wrong. And so the cooler we can be and the more that we can give the easy pieces that were maybe hard to figure out. Like it was easy to give me a hot tub in Sacramento at 540,000 when I was willing to accept almost any other shit box on top of the property. It was simple. All she had to do was pay attention to my request and honor it. However, she didn't. She kept paying attention to what she wanted, which was like all of these collected things that I didn't give a shit about. And so stop paying attention to your brain noise and start giving a shit to what your client's brain noise is telling you. I love it. All right, Jessica, you're resonating with a lot of people here. Jessica is asking, what is your disc profile, Hunter? Highest D possible. I am a 99D. I have a zero C and I have a five I, which is <laughs> I just have enough I in me to know that people exist and to care about them, but more of like a functional sociopathic kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's, let's, let's dive into that for a minute, because is that a helpful skill set when it comes to having conversation, hard conversations or I think so, you know, okay. because I, I tell my clients like, look, from, from the beginning, I'm having really hard conversations with them. I don't pull punches from day one. I believe that rapport building can include a good boxing match on the first day. And I also work really well with other high D clients. And so I take a lot of clients that are rude on the phone, the first internet lead, that's like a total jackass. And most people are just like, hang up. Oh, he's not a client. Those are my favorite ones. You know, the, the 82 year old Grouchalop who thinks that he has more money than God when he really has like a, you know, net gain of $2 million that year in his stock account and could go bankrupt at the next market tilt, but believes that he knows everything because he once had a real estate license in like Utah. 
you know, and he's buying property in Washington. You know, I, I love them. They are my favorite because ultimately they want someone strong to know that they're defending or they're being defended by someone who can take care of them. And so all of those hard conversations are usually just your client testing you and you don't realize it. You know, they, they ask you something about your commission and you flex and go, well, I could do it for less. And they think hmm, this is what they're going to do in a, in a negotiation with my offer on the table. And so it's just really important that you know that they're testing you on every single thing that you do, the way that you walk, the way that you act, the way that you answer the phone, the way that you shake their hand. You know, I, I can tell when a client shakes one of my partner's hands and, and it, the wrist is too limp. Like I have to go in for the strongest fucking handshake that exists in that world because they are judging me on every single thing. The way we sit down and the immediate way that I say, all right, you ready to buy your home? You know, and there's not, there's not a smile. There's not excitement. There's all right. Are you ready? This is important. And from the very first day, I'm setting every expectation. There is no detail that is left unturned in that first consultation, because if they are told what to expect and then what I say happens, then they're like, oh, he knows what he's doing. He knows what's going on. I feel more comfortable. And each time I layer one of those things in, even if it's a simple like, hey, we're going to be five minutes late to this one because this is going to take you a little bit longer, but I want you to walk around the shop. And then you arrive at 10.06, six minutes late to your next appointment. He goes, man, that was really accurate. You know, and each one of those little moments is a tie down for you to get more inside their psyche and for them to feel like hmm, I have actually hired an expert. And if you don't act like an expert, if you act like an Uber driver or you act like a consultation service provider that just walks them through options and says, well, it's up to you. So you don't have a recommendation. You don't, you don't have a thought on what I should do. What there's just so many choices you, you can choose. Of course, there's so many fucking choices. That's why I hired you, you moron. What should I do? Your clients want permission. Give them permission to do the thing that you want them to do. And then quietly guide them back to that over and over again. And if they wander away, let them wander away. Follow them down that path. Help them kick that can. Get to the end of whatever that hard conversation is. And when they're done picking up the jagged broken glass pieces and say, my hands are bleeding. I don't like this path. And you go, I, I know, honey, I told you it was kind of shitty at the beginning, but you said you wanted to walk down it. And so here we are. That other path is still available. Can we wander back there? I have roses and band-aids on the way. Come on. <laughs> so clearly humor, I think factors in which we haven't mentioned, but I do think humor factors in the way you deliver some of this. Um, you have a large team. Everyone on your team can't have your personality type. I haven't met all of them. I've met a few of them. They're wonderful, but like uh, people with different personality types, can they develop this skill set? And if so, how do you work with like your own team? How do you work with them to develop the, these skills? The minute that I figure that out, Jesse, I will be a billionaire. Um, so currently what I've determined a lot of my associates need to work on is one, their confidence that they are in fact the expert, because a lot of my agents are very high C type personalities. I have no C in me. And so my awareness of rules doesn't exist until one of my associates hands them to me and said, are you aware that you're breaking this? And I said, no, I'm not. Who's responsible for this rule and how can I get them to change it? You know, and and they're not aware that that's an option. And I'm like, well, where where does this rule exist? Is it a state law? That would be really sucky to change. I would like to start following it immediately. Is it a contract agreement? We can change that really fast. Does anyone know that we have to have it this way or would we just like to edit it? But for a high C type personality, they're like, panic, I'm not 
following a rule or doing something right? Is there a protocol for this? Where's the SOP standard work? How do I do it? And for them, they just have to calm down. They have to pivot and ask more questions. Everything that's available to them is available in asking the right questions. And so I never, like my client tells me, no, I don't get sad or dejected. I ask them, tell me more about that now. And I really, I want to know what drives it because usually what I found is that human beings are weird in their decision-making process, especially in real estate. And so if you just accept their decision-making process at their arrival point, then you don't actually recognize that like their decision consisted of six different parts and you took the no on part six, but they developed it based on part one being completely wrong. And you could go back to part one if you asked enough questions, change part one to what's true, and then a different consequence would follow suit and you would get the yes in part six that you wanted. People spend so much time fighting or accepting part five and six, and they don't realize whatever drew from part one. And that can be a misunderstanding on a client. That can be them not getting, you know, how financing can work. That, Like I had a client who wouldn't go past 575, absolutely just objectively wouldn't because he misunderstood how down payments worked. And so as soon as I explained to him that like, we were really talking about an extra five grand in down payment and $112 a month, and he could get the home that he really wanted. He was like, oh, I'll pay 600, no problem. And it was so easy. It was also a conversation that took three days. And I had to remain really patient, but it was not a hard conversation. I just had to have it over a three-day period and ask lots of questions. And so if you get a thing that you're not happy with, just stay really calm and just ask your client to explain more, but try not to use the word why. Why can be really like abrasive and attacky. And they'll be like, why are you questioning me? And so you have to use words like what or how, or can you help me understand what causes you to make that choice? Um, what took three days? I almost said, why, what took three days with this, uh, this conversation with this client? Um, we went to, so we started with breakfast. I let him know that we were going to be under contract in a week because the home that he wanted was already uh, available and it was, uh, hitting the two week mark and it was going to drop into the price point that I knew he could afford. He said, but I don't want to pay more than 550. I said, I understand you don't want to pay more than 550, but the home that you've described is actually worth 625. And I believe that I can buy it for you for 600. Would that be okay? And he goes, but I don't want to pay five. I don't want to pay more than 550. I said, I, I know, but did you listen to what I just told you? We actually don't have the option of paying 550. You will not get all of the things that you want. So are you okay with getting less of the things that you want? Or if I got you a solid 11 that made your wife extremely happy and you could have a horse on the property, would you pay 600 for that knowing that it was actually worth 625? And he goes, I can't afford it. And I go, okay, that's fine. Let's conclude breakfast. And I want to go see the property that you really want to see. And he goes, but it's listed at 635. And I go, stop talking to me about that. Let's go see the property. And he goes, you're that sure. And I go, I'm that sure. And he goes, okay. So then a couple of days later, we went and saw that one and seven others. The other six were terrible. He loved that, that seventh one. It was perfect. It was everything he wanted. You could see his eyes just open up back to the conversation back and forth of, I can't afford it. That's fine. Let's go look at a few other properties in two more days. Um, they're all under the price point that you can stomach. In the meantime, I'm going to have my lender call you, but I can't afford it. Yes, I know. Just go talk to the lender. An hour later, the lender calls me and goes, he's all approved at 600. He's super happy. He's very excited. You're still showing him the other properties, but just wanted to let you know. Okay, great. Fast forward to the third showing, third outing now. I've spent maybe a collective of seven hours with this man, including a two-hour breakfast where I spent 200 bucks. Um, he now loves me. 
We're sure that we're writing this property. I've been pre-negotiating three different deals at massive discounts, like $100,000 discounts. I've picked one. We're all out in rural areas an hour outside of Spokane. So nobody wants these properties right now because nobody wants to live in a rural outside of Spokane by an hour. We're like in Canada. And so I know that I can get good deals on these properties. Finally, we write at 575. The counter comes in at 600. He understands the difference in price point. He signs it. So it took three outings. It took three experiences with him. And it took me being calm and introducing the lender at the right time and just fixing his problem. You know, there were a lot of questions on day two around why are we so stuck on this 575 mark? Because I finally got him to 575 and he just wouldn't inch a dollar over it. And I thought that it was because he just had an objective like held down seven on I'm not going past that mark. But it actually turned out that his old lender told him that he was going to have to bring every dollar in cash over 385. And so he had a fixed amount of cash in his bucket that was a lot greater than I realized. I thought that he was stuck on, I must not have a loan balance over 385 because of my payment. But then I asked him, I go, what's the payment that you're comfortable with? And I hadn't asked him that question yet because he had been so fixed on price point and he had been so financially driven that I just trusted it. And so I, I messed up my own system. I just accepted his, his no and I moved on. And then on day two, I finally thought, you know what? Why are you so stuck on this price? And I just asked it like that. I go, why are you so stuck on 385 as your loan balance? And he goes, well, that's what my lender said I could have. And I go, oh, what's the monthly payment that you're used to paying? And he goes, oh, like 3,200. And I was like, oh, so if you had a payment of like 27 or 2,800, would that work for you? And he goes, absolutely. And I quickly called my lender, worked it all out and figured out that his other lender was just a doofus and that we could work it out my way and that my uh, buyer was totally okay with it. you know. And we skated through that and we, we had it, but it just required me to pivot and ask another question instead of just accepting his no. I, I love it, Hunter. I, we, we got one question that's, it's kind of, it's a, a little bit of a pivot. We only got two minutes, but I, I just want to ask it because Jessica's on here with us live and I appreciate people who are here live and asking questions. So um, she was asking, and I, I have a guess on your answer. What is the best way to hold your agents accountable to stay consistent on lead gen in a shifting market? That's a really good question. Um, so unfortunately, my team is probably the worst representation of accountability in that regard because we have been a answer your phone internet leads team since we started. And so we're making that shift rather poorly. Um, a lot of my associates do not like the idea that they have to prospect because up until about 60 days ago, we just never had to. Um, it was it was not in our, our modus operandi at all. And uh, they're not liking it. They're not enjoying it. And the short answer is is um, let them know very clean and clearly that if they want to remain a real estate broker, it's not so much that you will fire them, it's that the market will fire them. And that if they are not willing to do the hard work and if they're not willing to shift with the market, then the market will just eat them for lunch because the market does not give a shit if they can't pay their bills. I care if they don't pay their bills, um, but they right now are struggling because they want to know where are we going to eat when our lead flow has reduced by 60%. And I've talked with a lot of different team leaders throughout the country, lead flow has reduced by 60% in every state and every team and every region that I can locate. We're all working with less leads and we have ignored our sphere. And I looked at my transaction summary uh, just yesterday and of the 23 deals that we have uh, in escrow in our 30 day fixed right now, 17 of them are from my sphere of influence or from my uh, 
uh, agents for your influence. And that is typically a much smaller ratio. We are typically a 70, 30, 70% uh, market spend, advertising spend, and 30% SOI. And now we're reversed like 80% SOI, 20% market. And so uh, to me, that means that anyone who is not making 150 phone calls a week, um, making their, their call list and having at least 10 to 15 lunches and coffees a week with their clients and their friends and their family, um, you should, this is times to be taking pot pies and coffees to the receptionist of every divorce attorney, probate lawyer that exists and getting in with them. You know, agents are retiring this year and getting out of the market because they are done. They're COVID beaten and the market is about to shift. And so the old guard that is ready to retire is going to go. And the new guard that wasn't prepared to get the shit kicked out of them is going to leave. And so um, the pool is about to get bigger and the number of people in the pool is about to get smaller. So um, if you don't let them know that uh, there are opportunities boundless, but they have to work a lot harder for them. I think that was a fantastic way to wrap this up, Hunter. There are absolutely opportunities out there. By the way, if you're a team leader listening to this, take that last minute and a half when we release the recording and just have them watch the last minute and a half. <laughs> Seriously, might as well have Hunter tell them instead of you. It's easy, right? Just, just watch this. This guy's got 23 you know, under contract right now in the last 30 days. Anyway, Hunter, as always, this is awesome. I really, really appreciate you being here. It's so much fun. Thank you, Jesse. I, I appreciate that you always give me a podium to shout from. <sighs> good. All right, guys. We will see you tomorrow. Everybody have a good day. Hunter, thanks for being here. Bye, guys. If you'd like more information or to get connected to the Agent Power Huddle, join our free Facebook group. This call was designed for the agents in our EXP organization, but open to any agent from any brokerage. If you're a guest and you're interested in learning more about EXP or our specific resources within the Agent Collective, reach out to the person who invited you to this call to get more info. Produced by the Agent Collective Media Network.